Guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state, and this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, this is a wild time right now, to be frank. There's a lot of movement going on in this country, you know, Places are lifting restrictions. Places are are staying tight. And so we put together the all-star panel that we like to. We got Dr. Sumar Chakrabarty, Dr. Steph Burrell, and Dr. Zane Chagla in the mix. Before we get into it, I'm just going to do a couple of housekeeping things. Number one, if you want the audio or the video version of this, type in NL into the chat box. You'll be part of our newsletter, and we'll, we'll send... Uh, the, the video and the, the audio uh, directly emailed to you. Second thing, Solvent Wellness. This is our online platform to deal with uh, clinician burnout. We're going to put a link into the chat box once I get organized. That's going to allow you to have, uh, I think we're going to have about 10 free memberships. Um, so uh, yeah, we're looking forward to that. This is our way of combating burnout. We have our online workouts, yoga, mindful meditation, cooking clashes, nutrition tips, almost 300 members, a unified front, great community, and uh, something that we're real proud of. So uh, go to selwynwellness.com. And like I said, I'll drop the link when I get organized. All right. That's all the housekeeping stuff. So like I said, people, this is a, a really pivotal time in our history, in my opinion, like where we are very divided. We're very heated. And, and there's a lot of um, strong emotions right now about how we should be moving forward in within our, our country. And so we wanted to analyze this by, by approaching this with, with data, with, with facts, like why we feel like we could move forward. And so um, without further ado, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with Dr. Chakrabarty. You've been quite vocal on, on the media that we can open we can get rid of restrictions and move forward. Why do you feel this way? 
You know, I think, uh, you know, first of all, we've all been affected by this over the past uh, two years uh, in the third calendar year. Uh, we're, we're all uh, feeling it. Obviously, some people are feeling it much more. And I think that uh, looking and seeing uh, so much that we've learned since March 2020, uh, when we went uh, under the uh, the lockdown, I think that one thing that has become abundantly clear to me is something that actually I learned a lot from the, the our group that we talk a lot with or, uh, the idea that, you know, what's the lockdown actually doing at this point in time? And I think that, you know, it does protect a group of people, especially those who can't work, oh, that who can work, sorry, at home. Uh, and uh, people that uh, are otherwise uh, having to go to work, Amazon factory, whatever, whatever you, you think the risk has been downloaded to them. But as time has gone on, I think I've noticed that I'm not sure that anything that we really do makes a huge dent into what's happening with these waves. I think the, the virus is doing what uh, uh, it would have done a, anywhere else where there's no restriction. And we've certainly seen that pattern. Look at what we've done. Uh, the vaccination is wonderful. It's clear its role is for personal protection. It is amazing at taking your risk for severe disease and uh, significantly reducing it and eliminating, almost eliminating it uh, in, in many cases. So we have that for 90% of eligible adults. And if you look at the highest risk people, it's even higher than that. It's, it's in the mid nineties, the high nineties. So I think that we've gotten to a point where, you know, we've had this singular focus on COVID for two years and a, to the detriment of a lot of other aspects of our lives. I think it's time now, it's, it's abundantly clear. It was clear to many of us that we wouldn't be able to ever eliminate this. It's time now we can live with this safely, just like we have with other respiratory viruses. And we just have to remember that it's never going to be perfect. And I think now is the, time, the best time as any. And I think the final thing I'll say here is that numbers and dashboards and all that stuff, we've been following for the past two years. But the main thing at this point that's going to get us out of this pandemic is a cultural shift. And uh, I'm hoping to be part of what shifts that to get us into the post-pandemic period. I love it. So Zane or Steph, whoever wants to pipe in here, what, what can we learn from other places? Like there's been, we're not, I mean, there's other places in the world that have opened up at this point. Um, are they reassuring? Is it, it's, are they, is there areas of concern? What do you guys think? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm happy to go first. Yeah. Like, look, you know, I think we have an incredible comparison here of what happened with Omicron across the globe and what the impacts were of different levels of restrictions, different level of, um, yeah, of, uh, of impacts. We initially saw South Africa, which was literally an up and a down, very little restrictions imposed on the population, different population. Is there a name for that, uh, Zane, before you go on? Uh, uh, yeah. up and down? Is, um, Something to do with the whip? I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, you saw that in South Africa, this, this straight up and down. And, you know, caveats, it's a younger population, lots of natural immunity in the population, which, you know, on an aside, sometimes, you know, it was, was taboo to talk about now seems to be very recognized since everyone seems to have gotten Omicron. Um, but, you know, you saw this up and down, you saw some healthcare utilization from it, but you saw, you know, with the imposition of very little, uh, you know, the, the pandemic essentially going to very low levels very quickly. Uh, and now we have comparisons across much of the world in, in places like the United Kingdom, uh, which really imposed, you know, their plan B, which was, you know, we're, our best of times is living in plan B, I think, uh, you know, our, our kind of like, you know, non-restricted status is plan B with indoor masking, uh, you know, uh, uh, proof of vaccination, et cetera. That was their imposition and they saw an up and a down. 
Um, you see many countries in Europe, differing levels of restrictions, but again, an up and a, you know, a great up and a great down. Israel, who imposed very strict travel restrictions, uh, you know, had a very highly boosted population. Uh, you know, they were the prototype for boosting. And again, a, 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 a wicked up that's starting to come down now. And, and, and Australia, similarly. You know, so, you know, I think you saw this, right, without necessarily... Uh, imposing the restrictions, there was this pandemic. And it's, you know, that Stefan can probably talk a bit more about the, uh, you know, uh, SIR model where it's, you know, susceptible, infected, recovered. This is what we're seeing played out in real time, right? The virus finds its way through susceptible hosts to infecting them, to recovering them. Yes, there's some healthcare utilization along the way. I'm not going to discount the fact that people ended up in our hospital and ended up in our ICU as a consequence of the COVID-19 that they got. Um, but I think we, we have this way of saying restrictions, restrictions, restrictions. Yes, there are some that maybe like high capacity sporting events might be the one that, okay, you can scratch your head about and say that may not be the ideal, but you know, when, when the pandemic changes, we automatically blame it on the restrictions. Well, we have a natural experiment here where, uh, you know, many places didn't impose restrictions or put in place very soft restrictions and saw the same SIR curve basically turn over into the same whiplash curve, I think, we're everywhere. And that really talks about susceptibles going to infected, going to resistant. It's not a surprise that the estimates for Ontario are somewhere between 1.5 and 4 million for the Ontario Science Table, which is close to 30% of our population. Uh, and, you know, again, under a period of restrictions, we're actually coming under what the science table projected for the 4 million scenario, which may suggest it might be higher than 4 million that were actually infected, or there's a lot of post-infectious immunity plus hybrid immunity in the population that's been underestimated. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I think it's that, you know, the, unfortunately with Omicron, that the immunization, you know, what stopped Omicron was not restrictions. It may have slowed it down. It may have blunted the curve. It may put us into a decline peak that saves healthcare a little bit longer. Um, but it's not necessarily that's what shifted the curve. It's the, the fact that susceptibles went to infected, went to resolved at the end of the day. Do you, how much... Just out of curiosity, like what is uh, maybe Steph? I'll, I'll pick your brain on this. On oh, first of all, happy birthday, my friend! Twenty fifth birthday, twenty fifth birthday. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, before I, I, we're gonna get get into kind of like the future of COVID, how this is gonna look in the future, but. I'm just curious to your take on the natural infection perspective. Like this is something that, you know, we haven't really acknowledged right, right uh, in Canada. And there, you know, obviously it's having an impact on the, the future of COVID, the outlook of COVID. What's your take on either? I'll let you go with either why or how valuable it is to, to consider uh, in terms of natural infection. I mean, you know, it, it, it feels almost like a silly argument. You know what I mean? It feels almost like silly that I have to talk about the immune system. So maybe I'll just like reflect on when COVID first started, I was surprised by this notion. And, and that was really um, notarized within the, the Jon Snow memo that was like, we don't know if the immune system is able to respond to this virus. And, you know, I, I it was it was just it was really surprising to me because it's like, 
of course the immune system can respond to this virus. Like we as a species, whether you're religious or not, or anything, it's like we as a species have survived now for millennia because we have immune systems that work, you know, within the, within the environments that we find ourselves in. And, and by the way, even like, you know, different folks are well adapted based on hundreds of years of, of, of adaptation to different bugs and whether that be malaria or, um, Helminthes or whatever, like we all have these very specific dynamics that work better in some settings than others. Again, reflective of the environments in which we find ourselves. So, you know, I, I think that like, like, of course, there's infection derived immunity. Of course there is. Like, it's, it's, it's just like, it's, it, I find it at this point so disheartening that I have to say that out loud. Of course, the vaccine, of course, there's vaccine derived immunity. And, you know, I think between them, it's like, I will note that, like, only on this side of the ocean did we really exclude infection-derived immunity, like, as a thing. And we did that based on, like, you know, the, you know, a couple folks developed these commercial antibody systems. You know, we were very focused just on spike, like, you know, and, and we made our decisions based on, like, levels of spike antibodies in ways that I don't think we've ever done before. I mean, a lot's unprecedented these days, but that's particularly unprecedented. And of course, when you get exposed to the virus, like your body breaks it up and it makes, you know, it's, I don't know, it's millions, hundreds of thousands of epitopes that you're generating antibodies against as compared to, you know, the, the vaccine, which is, which is fantastic at developing antibodies against spike. So I literally saw like a, a headline the other day that says, you know, your body will not make, you know, antibodies against nucleocapsidic, you know, based on having the vaccine. It's like, well, of course it's not because like it's not encoded in the vaccine. And I think this singular focus on antibodies just, and it was just really, it's like tied into the fact that it has to be simple enough for social media that folks who have never studied immunology have to be able to kind of like pick up everything all within one or two or, you know, tweets or, or, or a short thread that we made it, that we had to package it. And then there was a second dynamic where I think people felt like if we said that there was no immunity derived from infections, that people would be more interested in the vaccines. It's like people are interested in the vaccines anyways. Do you know what I mean? Like that it, you don't have to mislead people. And, and I worry, and, and I think this worry is manifesting in that like you're burning trust as people realize, as, as you have to change the story. Oh, well, maybe there is an immune. Maybe you do have an immune system and maybe it does generate some immunity against this. And again, importantly, like, it's not immunity against infection. Like we have no idea how often we're infected by other bugs because we test for them nowhere near as often. If you go in, if I'm a family doctor, if I see folks for URTIs or for us protracted infections, like I'm like, you have a URTI, you know, assuming like no major risk factors, we're going to check back in like three or five days. If it's not getting better, like let's think about like kind of a whole series of diagnostic next steps, including ruling out pneumonias, et cetera. But I don't like, I'm not like, let's get you organ, let's get an NP swab organized. Let's start testing all these things unless there's like clearly articulated risk factors for, for doing that. And a reason in terms of like, as we'll talk about soon, like the, the early linkage to antiretrovirals or, or, or antiviral, uh, antiviral treatments. And so I'll just say this, that I think one, it was silly to to do this and i think it's gonna it's gonna haunt us as a field all of us and in research and we're research in academia it's gonna haunt us for a long time as people highlight these tweets and these stories and these things with like really important folks saying well we don't know if we have an immune system i, I just i worry that's going to age 
It's going to be one of the things that's going to age the worst amongst us of this time. And I think people will understand that they like even why we were doing it, which was to, to encourage vaccination, which we could have encouraged using a whole series of other means in terms of it making your immune system better or immune response better, or like don't get infected anyways, because like for some folks, infection is absolutely deadly. So there's a whole series of ways that we could have done this that I think would have avoided trying to mislead folks that was inherently going to age poorly because like, of course, we're going to learn. And when we learn, we're going to disseminate that information. And, and then we're going to have to explain ourselves as compared to, um, you know, a, a, and explain why we, we talked about it differently earlier as compared to just having been open throughout. No, I, one thing that really, I, I've said this before, I'll, I'll say it again, though. Like, I, I do think we we needed to be upfront with people, like completely honest with them, because like it's all about trust, public health. You know, it's, 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 uh, relationships. It's, um, you know, that ability to have trust in the clinician and, 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 and in public health. So to be upfront with that, I think was so vital to, to be able to gain that public trust. And, and this is where I think, as you said, Steph, like we just needed to be upfront and some of this stuff definitely won't age well. Suman, I'm going to go back to you a little bit. Um, so there is some worries, like like you said, like we we had the whiplash uh, Im- impact in m- multiple countries, just the, you know, uh, with different levels of restriction. So a lot of uh, I'm going to call the epidemiologists were concerned that once we open up, so schools open, um, gyms open, restaurants, all these things, that we're going to see a rebound. We're going to see another uh, increase in 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 hospitalizations and cases and so forth. What do you think of that? You know, I think that for the the, the Christmas wave, I, I, I think a lot of this has to do, at least in Ontario, I can speak the best for it, was you guys remember in the second wave in Ontario, the wave came down. That was still OG COVID, right? And that was probably the, the wave that happened because people gather at Christmas time. And then we had variant replacement. That was something that we couldn't control. It just happened. Nothing we did Nothing we changed, nothing Ford did cause it. This is just a, a bad, bad timing that happened. And Alf basically burned through here. But I think a lot of people got the sense that we opened too early. And that's why we had that, that third wave. That's certainly not the case. Now, not to say that if you, when you open up, you're not going to see, uh, I, I, like, I think Zane, you coined this phrase, the exit wave. You are gonna, probably going to see a little bit of a bump, right? But I think that this idea that the only way you can control control the virus is just by keeping everything shut is just this new idea that was in, it was invoked back in March, 2020. And it's something that we've stuck to as if that's the only weapon that we have against, uh, or we've never seen a respiratory virus before. And the only way to control it is by shutting everything down. And the thing is that I, when you look at it closer, like, okay, maybe you're shutting down a restaurant, restaurants and bars have been the scapegoat of this uh, pandemic. I think it's because they're leisurely, you know, uh, how dare you eat a burger while there's people are dying of COVID. That, that, I think that's somewhat how it goes, which by the way, goes back to the messaging, which is another problem. But when you kind of look at that, is that, okay, let's keep all that closed. And if we open that up, we're going to get a rebound. And I don't think that that's going to happen to the point that we saw that wave, because I think if you look at the Western countries or countries, essentially that, that to celebrate Christmas, go to our world and data and look at all of them. And you'll see that their whiplash curve was almost all at the same time. And even the countries that celebrate Christmas a couple of weeks later, the, the, I think it's Ukrainians they do, it's a little bit offset. 
right? And the reason is, I think that, you know, yeah, you have all these people hanging out at Christmas time. And then suddenly December 26th and January 2nd, contacts drop like a stone and not even in COVID. If, if you look at before, that's what is our, our flu pattern is in around mid-January, things drop. We get a bit of a bump, you, you know, March, April with our, usually with our flu B. But the point that I'm making is that this is nothing new. And I think that the idea that if we open up and everything goes back to the way it was before, I think that's not right. And I think that it's time for us to move on and stop uh, case counting uh, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think there's this, this, like, there's this area under the curve, right? There are a set number of cases that are going to happen with Omicron. Don't forget, you know, we lock down, we open up. Omicron is still here. That's the variant. That's outcompeted everything. It's not going to disappear. So that immune evasion, that, you know, uh, increased transmissibility that's been seen everywhere in the world is still going to be here. We don't have COVID zero, you know, COVID zero is dead. It's been dead since the beginning of this pandemic. Um, you know, Omicron is going to be here in that sense. And so, yeah, absolutely. As, as I think Subban had said, we are probably going to see a, a blunted or kind of a, a longer exit kind of or longer tail because that area on the curve is not just the highest kind of peak. It is going to be a, you know, slightly lower peak because, yeah, the restrictions did do something. They probably lowered the peak down a little bit. People were less mobile. People, you know, stayed at home more. And so that temporarily does decrease the amount of activity in the community. That's the so-called flattening the curve that we keep throwing about, uh, which we've been doing for the last 150 weeks. Um, uh, And then, you know, now you're seeing some of those increased contacts that probably are now happening that were not happening at that time. Um, on the way down, right? But I think again, you have to think about this simplistically. Omicron is infecting people at a high pace. Yes, third dose people, two dose plus prior infection, probably less so than everyone else, but there are still breakthrough infections in those populations. And so this virus is gonna keep finding, you know, people to infect, it's a respiratory virus. It it is spread by person on person contact. Uh, And, you know, there is not a scenario here unless we all stay at home and shut down society for the foreseeable future uh, that, you know, comfortably lets us get rid of Omicron in our society. And, uh, you know, I think we have to recognize that, right? So we flatten the curve. That's exactly what we were asked to do. You know, healthcare is coming down. The costs are coming down. All those cases are going to be spread over a longer interval. But again, what is the scenario we're looking for? That was it. That was sparing healthcare. That was trying to get to a point where we could manage what was happening. We have I'm not going to talk about the healthcare system. We all know about our issues with the healthcare system and who's sitting in our hospital beds at any given time. Um, but you know, I, I think we have to argue here that like, you know, that yes, we may have brought down things five to ten percent, but you'll catch up with them on the other end of this curve. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, people have the chance to get their third doses of vaccine and be fully vaccinated, or at least get their two doses of vaccine to be on the better end of that curve so they don't end up in hospital. Um, but, you know, th- there is a date waiting for everyone repeatedly with COVID-19. And I think we have to acknowledge that as, as that's probably our future. Yeah. So basically, you know, same area under the curve, just flattening it out. It's, we're, it's inevitable. Um I will say the one reassuring thing in terms of numbers so far with with our gradual opening with the schools, at least in Ontario, with uh, economy opening up, we haven't seen an uptick in hospitalizations as of yet. So I think that's reassuring. And I, I'm pretty sure in those other areas, 
that have had some opening, whether it's in Europe and whatnot, that they uh, that, that downward trend continued, um, which is once again is reassuring. So that in mind, Steph, I need you to pipe in a bit about what the future of COVID looks like, because once again, we aren't escaping the virus. Uh, Omicron's not going anywhere. We're going to be future variants as far as I'm concerned. Um, and we need to be approaching this in a way that is sustainable. And, and as we talked about, uh, you know, these lockdowns, these school closures, you, we can't just keep doing this. It's not a recipe for success. And so um, I'm interested to hear from your perspective as a public health expert, where you see us going in terms of uh, like managing future variants and future outbreaks. Yeah, I mean, I think public health is kind of get back to its roots. And so, I mean, just to sort of reflect on other places, you know, if you got um, Denmark and Sweden, so, I, you know, I, I, Having grown up in Sweden and knowing, like, you know, with a lot of my friends as physicians and public health folks there, you know, I mean, they've just made a decision that what they are going to use as a guide are ICU cases. Now, people can argue ICU cases are a lagging indicator and they could increase. And I think, you know, you just kind of have to give the folks there the benefit of the doubt that they are looking at this very closely. They are seeing trends and they're going to make decisions accordingly. The reality in Denmark. ICU cases have continued going down as cases have just been exploding. And I think they've just said, like, at this point, like, folks can get tested as a means of understanding their diagnosis, of documenting, and from epidemiological perspectives, it can be useful to understand transmission dynamics. There's a lot of reasons why that can be useful. But to use it, obviously, and I think as Simon and Zainavari said, as, like, as, 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 like, the focus drivers of programs is a mistake. And, and I think public health, if you had asked almost any public health community medicine experts. So I did Royal College in public health and preventive medicine. And if we had had a, an exam on our Royal College that like laid out an evaluation framework for a pandemic uh, strategy, like I nobody in there would be like, you know what we need to do is track cases every day and, and make sure that we change our programs day to day in response to them as if we're like a stock, you know, chasing stock prices or whatnot, or hedge fund, like chasing stock prices. Even Amazon doesn't do that day to day, but even if the hedge funds do it, Amazon itself is like holding steady and focused on its, you know, medium and long-term strategies. And I think we didn't give public health agencies the opportunity to just like have a strategy and follow that strategy. Like in the last few weeks, even the last, let's say the last few months without giving into names, but you know, we, well, there's not a secret. We had our medical officer of health, like make an announcement on a Thursday that was overruled by a political party on Sunday. You know what I mean? It's like, there's no strategy in three days, including two on a weekend, you know, that, that took place really political decisions that have nothing to do with public health expertise. In terms of moving forward, I, th I think like, you know, public health at its core has a really solid idea of what to do. And it is really not about ending programs. The problems with like a restrictions based response, it's always been the case is that it, was in, it had to stop at some point. Do you know what I mean? And, and you, you, you know, whether it's like we talk about off ramps from restrictions because we got to get out of people's like faces every day. I don't just not talking about masks. I'm just like, we have to get out of the face that public health kind of goes back to being a supportive and important resource and set of programs in the background that are supporting folks, but it's not in, in your face and you're not reminded by it by showing multiple pieces of paper to get into a gym or, or into a restaurant or whatnot. And I think, so there's a few things that are going to happen. One, public health is going to have to do a lot within particular facilities and centers. Like we know that long-term care facilities were vulnerable and they probably remain vulnerable to this and other vaccine preventive 
because we've seen that and we've seen the horrors that were associated with that. So what are the sorts of investments that we're making to make these facilities safer? I work particularly within the shelter setting. I was there today. It remains extremely vulnerable, these settings, to a whole series of you know, infectious diseases, and by the way, non-infectious diseases and, and conditions. And I think, you know, public health needs to have the ability and resources to, to address those. And also for future variants, because there's a lot of, you know, there's sort of this intersection of like comorbidities and vulnerability to severity, as well as these, you know, these incredibly rapid transmission networks within facilities, because you just basically can't prevent it. So I think, that, you know, what it is moving forward is that public health needs to sit down and understand like, who are the folks that remain vulnerable? What are the ways that we can serve those needs in a way that is meaningful to them? And, and we do that with resources, folks that are unstably housed, that are couch surfing, that are moving around, these busy networks. Suman talked about, you know, within Amazon, like if I'm at an Amazon facility, I want to go and better understand, like, what are the occupational health protections in place? And not just from a perspective, like I know we talk a lot about ventilation, but it's like, what are the broader comprehensive sets of occupational health? What are the standards in place for those? How do we regulate those and make sure that, that folks are protected, again, from future variants of COVID-19, but other vaccine preventable diseases? And so I think the general shift that needs to happen is one from like restrictions to services and programs, because public health is not a series of like titrating restrictions. That is not what I trained in. It's not this like arbitrary, do you know what I mean, element of like, you know, I'm going to like restrict this. I'm not going to restrict that. I think what it is, is empiric interventions. And, and, and the last thing I'll say, and I think, you know, Zane, Zane will probably build on this also, is that like testing does have a role moving forward, but it needs to kind of get also back to its core of like we test as a means of guiding to an intervention that could be a resource based intervention in terms of onward transmission, because the person is well enough. So all we might do is give them an oxygen, oxygen saturation monitor to like monitor themselves and make sure they're not doing poorly. But it's also the case that like we have a targeted testing strategy that can lead into meaningful therapeutics as we do for influenza. Back to that story of somebody, if I'm, if I see somebody that has COPD, lots of comorbidities and they're febrile and they're sick, I do want to get an NP swab on them because they probably would benefit from, they could have influenza and they would benefit from like Oseltamivir or something to, to try and address that. So I think what it is, is about being smart about how we test so that we can link into therapeutics for those that have it. And then from a programmatic perspective, we get smart and empiric about how we design our interventions, again, in response to data as compared to like the hordes and the sort of political like the fact that you're, you know, like how much your restriction, how much you're restricting stuff is like how strong of a leader you are. I think as, when we're, when we go down that route, we find ourselves in very difficult places. So what I'm hearing is interventions greater than restrictions, know where the problems are. I, I always, I always approach it like maybe it's too simple. I reverse engineer who lands in ICU, who lands in hospital. Ask yourself yeah. that question. And are we making sure that we are offering testing and therapeutic options to those cats to make sure that we protect our healthcare system? S simple, full stop. And uh, maybe I'll get Zane to talk about what that future looks like too, because you, you were directly involved in setting up monoclonal um, uh, clinic. And so, uh, you know, just following up with what Steph is saying, like, how do you see that future? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Steph is, is completely right here. Um, you know, I, I, it was a push to try to get people treated, right. You know, monoclonals were approved, were approved in Canada, July, 2021. There was 
reasonable data that came in with the large clinical trials that were published suggested if you give it to the right populations, you reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. We, went, we were flying blind. We went based on what we think were the highest risk factors for hospitalization and death based on series. Immunocompromised, unvaccinated people with high-risk features. Um, it took heaven and earth to get, you know, uh, moving heaven and earth to get one of these clinics started, right? Uh, we fought, begged, pleaded, uh, borrowed, and, and finally got a team to, to offer monoclonals in Ontario, which is the first clinic and probably, you know, the largest functioning clinic. We've been at 300 monoclonals to date. That is more than most provinces uh, uh, other than Alberta. Uh, it's, it's pretty crazy where we've come. And, you know, it's, it's exactly that. The motivation wasn't, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, a, you know, drug company funded or anything like that. The motivation was we have a therapy that linked with testing can change outcomes for people, regardless of their vaccine status, you know, knowing who are the high risk people that end up in our ICU recurrently. Um, and what happened? I mean, I think it, you have to just reflect on what happened over Christmas and, and new year's with our testing. Um, we had these clinics running. We wanted patients. I mean, we had a lot of patients because we were one of the only functioning in Ontario. Um, but testing just went down a, a hellhole of everyone and their dog who could get tested, who has a runny nose gets tested. But yet these people in line that are the ones that I need to get to within seven days to give them treatment, to keep them out of the hospital, were standing in the back of the line for tests because they couldn't get on their iPhone and try to find an appointment somewhere uh, or stand in line or, you know, couldn't access the or rapid tests that were at the, yeah, stuck at work or couldn't happen, access the rapid tests at the LCBO that were offered. Right. And, and so, you know, I ended up seeing these folks in hospital and saying, man, if I saw you three days before we could have prevented this. Like if I knew you were positive three days before we could have given this and we're, we're getting better now. We have access to Paxlovid. We have access to monoclonals. I think many of the provinces have realized the point of testing is treatment, you know, first and foremost for that population. And many of them have allowed access for people. There's still a need to kind of, um, you know, narrow down exactly who benefits from these treatments, particularly in the vaccinated era. You know, uh, uh, obviously an 18 year old that has two doses of vaccine that tests positive, unless they have major, major medical issues, we were not going to give treatment to, but you know, BC has published really interesting data talking about, you know, comorbidities and the risk of hospitalization amongst different vaccine statuses amongst different age portals. And I think that's actually really helpful for us to guide treatment. If you are an 80 year old with three doses of vaccine, I may still want to see you for treatment because the risk is not, you know, zero for you for ending up in hospital if you get COVID-19 and I may be able to offer more supports. If you are a 40-year-old with no medical comorbidities that has two doses of vaccine, I may not have to see you for your, your, uh, your COVID diagnosis, right? And so there is going to be a lot of this hopeful personalized medicine, this linkage. There are, you know, Millions of courses of Paxlovid supposed to come into Canada. There's, you know, thousands of doses of monoclonal supposed to come into Canada. There's some doses of molinopivir supposed to come into Canada. All of these are going to help, right? But we really have to, you know, work on patient education to, to tell these patients who are high risk, listen, 
go get a test regardless of your vaccine status. You have to put no barriers for them to get a test. And we have to be able to catch them in time, which is a huge impediment. You know, five to seven days is not an easy feat to get to people. Uh, and, and, you know, again, it is the, the critical window for these therapeutics to work. You know, when you're, you're thinking about a number needed to treat a 10 to prevent a hospitalization, there's not a lot of things in medicine that give you a number needed to treat of 10 to prevent a hospitalization, right? Uh, um, but, you know, it, it really involves the effort of finding these patients appropriately to get to them appropriately. And unfortunately, we've lost a lot along the way that could have accessed treatment. So, you know, it is the future, but there's a lot of work that needs to be there to get to there. I'll argue that, that we we should be pushing the agenda. Mm-hmm. We should be pushing the agenda. It's like oh, people don't I, know. It's like we should have. I, I'm sorry, the, but people just sorry. Go ahead, Zan, before I go yeah, off. For the millions of dollars that have been lost. Yes. In, in industries that have you know had to shut down through the pandemic. Those million. I mean, can you imagine if you could put those millions aside to testing high risk, vulnerable populations? You know. Customized, you know, we're. I don't want to talk about the airport, but we have switch health at the airport testing people, uh, you know, that are asymptomatic travelers. Why not contract to switch health and say, listen, this person, you know, called our health, you know, telehealth and said they have symptoms of COVID 19, they fit the criteria for treatment, go to their house or or send them a kit and test them uh, and, and send us the result. I would say, a hundred million times that would save us so much in terms of healthcare dollars, save us so much in healthcare burnout, save us so much in, in, in taxpayer dollars. Uh, and, and, you know, no one is, is talking about this, right? Treatment paradigms are not being pushed. But at the end of the day, you know, when we live with this virus, the whole point is keeping people out of hospital. There should be millions of dollars being put into place to keep people out of hospital when we have tools to keep people out of hospital. Yo, let me go off a little bit. This is what is driving me nuts, man. This is a land of innovation. We have, we could put a person on the moon. We could set up a vaccine in a year's time. And you telling me there's not that energy to figure out how we could personalize this, how we could communicate it to the high risk people. I'm telling you, you mail them their, their uh, rapid antigen test. You, you are positive on this rapid antigen test. You have the center that you call or you text or you email, and we will bring you the treatment we'll tell you where to go okay like this is where it needs to go and and the fact that we we still people have no idea how to quantify their own risk in 2022 like this should be on an app this should be as easy as um it is as ding 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 you know what i'm saying and if it is out there why isn't it global why isn't it like like mad promoted you know what i'm saying well i'll tell you why i think um you know, throughout this pandemic, there's been sort of this notion of like, we're all in this together. It's truly like the only way I can describe it often. I, I don't say this often, but it's, it's, it's like, it's like all lives matter. It's the ultimate all lives matter response. It's everything. It's like, we're all the same. We're all in this together. We are and race, and, a human and, race. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think that like in, in it, I can understand it because people are like, you're devaluing people with comorbidities. I was like, no, we're not. No, we're not. We want to do more for them. 100%. We want to do more for folks who are at higher risk and we want to spend less and be, and also to be less in the face of people who are less at risk. 
And I understand that there are dynamics around networks and we can educate people about that and onward transmission risks, et cetera. I think one, we didn't trust the public. And so we led them into believe that like a 23 year old needs three vaccines plus documented infection to be safe. And that they're at the same risk as like a 76 year old. And, and, and so I think that like, what's that? What's that? Yeah. Okay. Oh, kids. Well, absolutely. And, and I think that the, the dynamic is such that, like, you know, because we did that, we kind of burned our energy in those interventions that were so low yield. And it just took us away from having the time and the energy and the resources as a city, as a province, as a country to really invest in really meaningful, re, you know, interventions. And like Switch Health, that, that shop, I just, you know, I walked by it the other day and I just was because I used to work out there. Like it's, uh, for those of you who've seen it, it's over by the good life at, in, in terminal one. And it is, it, it's just all I'm seeing there is money that could have been invested. First of all, I saw enough staff there to staff a small hospital. I saw 28 booths uh, for, with two people per booth, just like registering people. I saw 24 nurses. And then I just saw all these like people randomly just walking around. I think, I, I don't know what their role was. I'm sure they were just like floaters. And then you just imagine a lot of management and you can, and that is, you can see 600 million is what the $30 million for arrivals testing for people who've already been tested. Can't get into the country unless they've already been tested or documented infection. So, you know, you just sort of, all I see in that is opportunity cost of like real interventions that could have had real outcomes for the folks who are on the margin, but we didn't do that. Instead, we literally spent, if we round up like a billion dollars on this. And I, I don't know that there's any other country in the world that's doing that. I think oh, the right. switch health debacle is kind of, is a uniquely Canadian phenomenon that we've going to have to own. Like you don't have that in the States. You don't have some like company that's contracted to chase people or to do arrivals testing. I've landed in multiple us airports for the last year. This is a uniquely Canadian phenomenon. And I, I don't, you know, and, and I'll just say, like, I don't want to focus on this company because I get it. Like, they're a small company. They saw huge contracts and they ran after them. Like, why wouldn't they? That's, they're just like, make, they want to make money. But I think that, like, you know, when you looked at who they were initially, it was like they were, like, doing the Toronto Maple Leaf stuff and others. And I think they finally figured out that the government is, like, an unlimited set of resources, irrespective of their yield, which is supposed to be, is, is so infinitesimally low. Can you imagine how many people must test positive? These are people who have already, who are vaccinated and who've already been tested within the last three days, right? Maximum three days. And then they get tested. It must be like one in a few thousand test positive. We've never seen those statistics. Can't find them online. So th the point isn't about switch health, even though as a Canadian, as a taxpayer, it's horrific. And it pains me gravely that people become so rich of such a shitty intervention. But, but it's more about the fact that like, we didn't spend that money on things that like really could have like changed and improved people's lives. And that, that's what pains me as a public health practitioner. And I, what I want to say too, just to piggyback on that is I feel like this pandemic has been uh, the, the a dialogue of like unintended consequences. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it would make sense to, um, you know, to, to re to re swab people, uh, people coming through the border. When you think about all that money could be used in other resources. When you think about, um, you know, offering up third doses and boosters to 18 and above, whereas I'm st sitting there seeing a 70 year old gentleman that doesn't know how to book his thing online and is, is, is can't get his uh, booster for another three weeks. Meanwhile, 18 year old Jimmy or Joey, 
gets his done, who's ultra low risk. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, this, can, I, can, I, can I please comment on this? Yeah, please do. Please do. The booster is a thing that has um, the biggest B in my bonnet. And I, you guys have all had to deal with my rants. Um, first of all, I think that um, the vaccination is an amazing thing. And um, I, I, I guess I've been called anti-vaccine in the past uh, uh, six weeks. Which I think is amazing considering what I do. But I think the thing is that um, uh, Quadra, you kind of uh, referenced the idea of um, actually Stefan did as well immunology and stuff that we already knew before it became kind of popular in the public, right? And the um, the, the thing with um, boosters is that you know when the, when the discussion was going on before that, look, it, it looks like um, uh, in older people. Uh, you need that third dose nudge to get that uh, long-term memory response. And I think that we had pretty good, at least very suggestive data at the time we were talking about boosters, right? And, you know, I remember us discussing this. This makes sense for long-term care. It makes sense for immune compromise. Then all of a sudden they started talking about like 60-year-olds. Then it became 50. And then all of a sudden it was 18 plus. Wait, 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 wait. why are we boosting all these people again? And um, uh, the other thing that, uh, uh, and then all of a sudden it became like, if you kind of were watching people talking about it, it became like, come, yeah, you know, make sure you're vaccinated and boosted. And they're kind of saying that as a blanket statement to everybody, which then goes to Stefan's point that like, you know, these um, interventions that we're doing really should be focused on the people who need it the most. And an 18 year old doesn't need to be boosted. I, I don't, I don't, care what anyone says, but now we're going into the other side of things where we've had a um, wash of Omicron over the entire population. And the four of us were talking about this thing. You know, we might need to revisit our boost or our vaccination policy altogether because we've just had this massive natural booster go through the population. And I think that this is finally the time that I feel that we are just in general, the idea of immunology has been heard. Even Paul Offit wrote that op-ed in, where, where was it again? New York Times? Washington Post. Yeah. Washington Post, just, just last week. But, you know, saying that like, maybe we don't need to. And to be honest with you, uh, I, I, I love Paul Offit. I think that it's, it's interesting that this is the thing that caused him to realize that he, I think he's a bit vaccine happy in other low risk groups, but this was his breaking point and i think that you know this is the point we have to kind of realize let's like side let's get some evidence let's get some data before we go forward with these massive interventions uh and yeah a lot of us were exposed so yeah so, I, can i two yeah, things on this yeah, please for yeah, sure, yeah. For sure. one i i really want to go back to say what happened with our booster campaign right can we remember what happened back in March and April of last year, when we thought we were going to escape the third wave with vaccines, and then we realized we didn't vaccinate the right people, the people in essential work communities, the people in low-income communities. There's a great, actual, incredible paper that came out today. I recommend everyone takes a look at it in JAMA of Montreal around ring vaccination in high-risk populations and vulnerable populations that showed incredibly well and Montreal actually survived the third wave quite well uh, without you know imposing huge restrictions um, uh, you know that, that ring vaccination in, in high-risk communities especially around positive clusters had incredible effects in terms of reducing pandemic spread to the alpha variant and so we had these lessons we learned them well we actually did a really actually I, I wouldn't shame Ontario after we kind of realized you know, when, when we went through that third wave, we had to shut down again. The vaccine should probably go into the highest 
uh, contact populations in order to prevent spread. And it worked. And I think we, we saw the benefits of this. We saw places like Peel region turn from the hot spots to cold spots, basically, once vaccines went out there appropriately. And then what happened? We go back to December. We're seeing this Omicron wave. And what happens? Boost everyone. Boost everyone in every community. Just put lineups, pop-ups, you know, let people line up for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Guess what happened? Rosedale, you know, the rich areas saw their boosters, you know, huge. Why? Because everyone could get their boosters. They could take time off work. They could stand in the pop-ups and the lineups. Jane and Finch has a 35% lower booster rate. You know, we, we did the same thing again. We did the exact same thing again. And yes, you know, I, I think there was a gambit here for the boosters to say that they slowed transmission based on early data, you know, 60 to 70%. We're now seeing that's probably down to 40 to 50% at 15 plus weeks based on the UK data. Um, and, and I think there was a study that actually came out of the US suggesting again, emergency room visits also kind of came down uh, to about 30 to 40% protection as well that just got released by MMWR today. But you know, we did the same thing over again, right? Even when we were, you know, trying to prevent transmission, we didn't do what we were supposed to do. We didn't learn the lesson that we learned in May and June of last year, going into high-risk communities. We just let everyone get a booster, whoever could get one, whoever could book online, whoever could, you know, stand in the pop-ups, whoever could go on vaccine hunters, God bless them, uh, you know, uh, were, the, were the ones that could get a booster. And we saw the effects of it. And then literally, literally, at the beginning of January, we started talking about third dose mandates. After we decided to let everyone and their dog who, who, you know, could compete for a booster, play the hunger games, get a booster. Uh, And finally, once, you know, the rates started slowing down because people who were playing the hunger games got their doses and the people that had to work, who were discouraged to line up, who did not have medical counseling to get into the boosters, were, you know, standing at the back of the line saying, why am I wasting my time for this? You know, and, and those people, you know, some of their elders ended up in hospital because of it. Right. So, you know, I think we have to sit back and say, we still have not learned our lessons. We are not learning our lessons. And, you know, the fact that we talk about a third dose mandate is an incredible disservice to those lessons that we, we, you know, thought we learned in the third wave, but really didn't apply at all into this wave whatsoever. Yeah, I, I I feel like this is another anthem of the of the the pandemic is very responsive, not proactive on any perspective. Learning slow, you know what I'm saying? Um, Steph, where are you going? Through? It's 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 not it's not learning slow. It's it's just not being able to react to, you know. I mean, this I think it's it's the intersection of just political pressures into a public health response. Like you know, everything that Zane said, like folks at public health at the PHU level and at the provincial level, they know this. None of this would be a surprise. They're aware of it. Whether they're able to act on it is just a very different thing. And I think one of the lessons is that, like, it was never clear, like, who was in the lead. I say this, and not not because the public health folks are my friends, because they are my friends, and I know them to be smart and that they know these things. They can't speak publicly about it, but they know. The... I think that the difference really just like, were they in control? Could they have made these decisions? Could they have lifted these things? Like, who did we speak? Who did we see? It was, it's Doug Ford, Christine Elliott, Justin Trudeau, 
Aaron O'Toole, now others, you know, like speaking about these, it's so political every day that I'm not, I'm not here to defend public health because I don't think they need defense at all. I think that it is, we need to reflect and ensure like in the future that, that public health actually gets to lead the public health aspects. I know the political aspects are bigger than just public health. And, and I think there, but, but you can't say that it's all political and then, or you should say, you can't say that it's like, it's political, but oh, we're just following the science when really what you're doing is making a political, politically calculated decision about something that is independent of data. So serving Rosedale before serving essential worker communities is not politically viable, even if it's public, even if it's empirically, you know, important. And, and so, and, and, and empirically and empirically supported. And so, I mean, I, I just, I want to make that point because I think that it is like irrespective of our political leanings, it has, um, it's, it's, it's been challenging to see the overruling consistently of, of public health folks by political folks in response to social media, traditional media, all those things. And, you know, and, and just because I don't think that anything we're saying here is a surprise to folks inside the rooms. I just don't think that they had the power to, to take that and turn it into consistent policy. But I mean, to be honest with you, Steph, like that's part of the learning slow. Like, yes, you could, you could have the best minds at, in front of these decision makers, but these decision makers, whether it's politics, whether it's, well, I mean, it was politics, frankly, um, and, and expecting a different result, approaching the problem the same way, I, I mean, it just, it was infuriating <laughs> for, uh, to put it lightly. Um, maybe cause Zane, you wrote this, I mean, that great article, um, in terms of, you know, the political, political, I can't say it, politicizing. That was all of us. That was all of us. <laughs> yes. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just saying like you, you were the orchestrator, like you, you, you owned it, you know what I'm saying? And just was a privilege to be a part of that, but just your perspective on, on the politics in this mandates, I think we like just formally, we, you know, this this idea of, of throwing down mandates to 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 try and um, create change. Like, wh what's your thoughts? Yeah, look, I, it's tough, and I, I was someone who supported mandates, and I will say that explicitly. Uh, you know, when Delta was here, the evidence really suggested that vaccinated people could transmit less than unvaccinated people. And, and you know, even with boosters, there's data, you know, suggesting that very well too. When things changed with Omicron, yes, you know, we saw a very big difference in the vaccines. We saw two doses, 26 weeks out, good data from Ontario and the UK that suggested 0% difference in transmission between two dose vaccinated people and um, uh, unvaccinated people. Third doses, there is some protection. I'm not going to say that. It looks like it is temporary, but it lasts out to 15 weeks to about 40%. UK data is a little bit mixed up because of some hybrid immunity there, but you know, looking at that compared to their two dose plus natural infection and their siren data, it looks like it's about the same. So you know, there is something there in that sense. But people who just threw the switch on on mandates here without you know again i i'm one that put this the, the 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 i will admit i will you know mandates i wrote about them i thought they were reasonable in the context of keeping the environment safe in that um in that uh delta wave and and when delta was the dominant variant because we had such good vaccine susceptibility to delta including transmission um 
when we saw Omicron and we saw what was coming out of the UK around transmission and reduction in efficacy of the vaccine, we didn't have honest discussions of what that meant to a vaccine mandate. We just kept it, right? And, uh, and you know, again, this is where it started coming out when start, people started talking about third doses and then saying, we're going to institute third doses. You know, I think all of us see in our practice people that did not get vaccinated and their stories are not, um, you know, the, what you see in the media in terms of being blatantly anti-science, anti-vax, et cetera. Some of them are people from, you know, environments that, that and countries that had distrust of the vaccine. Some of them are Canadians that had distrust of government because of prior episodes. And, and uh, you know, and, and, you know, I think we know very well that racialized communities are probably the highest on the totem pole in terms of this. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we recognize that people weren't getting vaccinated for firm and fixed beliefs and, and medical distrust. Then you put institute, you know, mandates into place and fine, there may have been a scientific basis prior, but when that scientific basis got shakier and shakier, we didn't have the honesty to say, wait a second, you know, going to a third dose here, especially when you see a time related reduction in efficacy, not zero, it's 40% right now, 15 weeks. But what happens when it gets to 30%? What, what, what happens when third doses get to 30%, to 20%, to 10%? Are we going to still follow that science? What happens when natural immunity rips through the population, which no one wants, but I think is hap- obviously is happening, you know, with, with 30% of Ontario's population being infected, it's happened, um, where we're starting to see data emerge out of Qatar, out of the you know, United Kingdom, suggesting that two dose plus infection that even natural infection without you know vaccines probably stands up as two doses if not more to to uh to variants of concern and so you know reconciling all of this was the, the reason for this article right um uh it, it is just you know it was the the reason to for this article to say look a lot of people got two doses in omicron we don't need them to get a third dose and i think paul offitz you know again reinforced that today uh, or yesterday with his article a lot of people you know probably had natural infection kids you know are we really going to take away the rights of kids and adults because they don't get a third dose and and you know they they've rolled up their sleeve and gotten two doses are we going to tell an 18 year old that they need three doses when the risk of hospitalization is 0.1% and then people started playing this game of well it reduces hospitalization uh, and you know we should get people the third doses because it reduces the risk of hospitalization that's academically dishonest right because if we were going to exclude people in society based on the risk of hospitalization uh, to go into high risk settings, we should never let an eight year old into a high risk setting, period. Right? We should let an unvaccinated, based on the BC data, I'm happy to bring it up, we should be able to allow an unvaccinated 18 year old into uh, a high risk space and never allow an 80 year old who's triple vaccinated into a high risk space, especially if they have one medical risk factor, which I think probably most 80 year olds do. And so, you know, again, that's a bit academically dishonest. We want to be equitable. We don't police other um, uh, health conditions that increase a risk of hospitalization. We don't tell people with severe COPD to not go out in public, even though, you know, if they were to get influenza or rhinovirus, they could end up hospitalized in an ICU on BiPAP, something along those lines. Uh, and so, you know, this got really, really murky. And I think that's, that's really the point of this, is we have to step back and say, what are we doing? We want people to proactively get a vaccine. 
there are going to be better vaccines coming down the pipeline, pan-coronavirus vaccines, inhaled and, and, uh, and, uh, and um, aerosolized vaccines. You know, those are probably going to be the pathway to more disease control and, and more, more, you know, advance in this. But we can't burn our bridges right now to try to get people third dose vaccinated by mandates when we have to keep, you know, the public with us for the future. I will say one thing. So I did a great interview with uh, with Matt uh, Galloway probably a week and a half ago, and it was just before was the uh, Michael Peterson, who's the guy from Denmark, who um, uh, advised Denmark, a political scientist that advised the Denmark government about reducing restrictions. And we could talk about, you know, what what that meant and what where they are right now. But the one thing I took away from that interview is there was this concept of trust, uh, you know, that, you know, we don't know if a new variant is going to come by and we're going to have to impose restrictions. People trust that government that they are going to mandate the right things for them. They're going to mandate the restrictions for them when the time comes and they will take them away and not force them when the time is not needed. Denmark is now telling people you know, after third doses, we're done. You know, probably a lot of people should get their third doses. Kids should probably get their vaccines, but we're done after this. They, you know, we're not going to do anything more in that sense. Um, but I think that that piece is there, right? Trust is so important these days. And, you know, we can't politicize certain things because we want to. We can't align political parties. I mean, I, I'm not going to call that political parties, but there was one predominant political party that was pushing third dose mandates out there and railing the, the government in charge based on it. Uh, and we can't do that in this context. We lose trust in our population. And as we get through this next two to three years living with COVID, trust is going to be what's important for us more than anything else. I could not agree more. That's why it's all about being upfront. When you don't know, you don't know. When you know, you articulate it as best you can and provide people with choices. Um, listen, what about, we're gonna get a lot of questions about. Like, uh, I promise we would, we would touch this one. Like masking of kids in schools. I know this is kind of like a, maybe a little bit out of left field here, but um, and Steph said he was gonna take it and he had to dip. Um, I don't know, Suman, if you're comfortable take, talk, talking about this one. And um, yeah, because like a lot of people, you know, there's a, a lot of jurisdictions now, Alberta, I think even uh, Saskatchewan, if I'm not mistaken, some places never had uh, masks for their young ones uh, in school. Do you have a strong feeling about this? Yeah, well, listen, I think that when you look at masks in general, um, these, this is an intervention, I think, that has a certain role in high-risk settings. I think that uh, we, when you look at this two years in, and Zane and I were just talking about this, is that we don't have a lot of good high-quality data of something that is so widespread and assumed to be a, a parachute from jumping out of a plane. And then you look at the evidence that nothing's really all that good. The, the best uh, randomized trial we have is out of Bangladesh, uh, and in, in the most... Um, uh, you know, idealized circumstances, the absolute risk reduction is so small. Uh, and then, you know, once you kind of get out of that um, uh, trial setting, you know, it, things go back to people wearing masks improperly, uh, you know, uh, not wearing them all the time. I'm skeptical that the mask does much in the community. I'm skeptical. I'm, not, I, I'm completely willing to be um, proven wrong. Uh, and of course, like, you know, if there is a higher quality mask, like a KN95, N95, you know, is that something that's, that's pragmatically accessible to everybody? 
And, you know, there were countries that like Austria that had them mandated and you still saw massive waves there. Right. So I think that for me that uh, uh, the mask question is a difficult one in kids. I think that the there's never a time that's more important to look at the risk benefit ratio than in kids. All right. And I've been I've been uh, very vocal about this. I get a lot of pushback about it. But kids um, certainly can get ill from COVID, but on the grand scale of things, the risk of, of um, uh, hospitalization and severe outcomes with COVID is small. It's tiny. You can focus on the kids that are in hospital right now. And yes, that as a father, I've, I have three little girls. Uh, for sure, it, 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 it makes you nervous. But in the overall grand scheme of things, kids are very low risk. You look at masking. Are we doing much in that setting? Is masking actually, um, you know, preventing transmission to the point of coming with an with a, an outcome that we want in the public, which is at this point to decrease hospitalizations? Is masking little kids going to do that? Well, maybe in certain circumstances, yes. I, I'm not going to deny that, but I think a blanket mask mandate for kids, to me at this point in time, doesn't make sense anymore. If you want your your kid to wear a mask go right ahead. I, I will not judge you. I think that we need to make our personal risk assessments. But I think as a mandate at, in, you know, whatever it is, February the 11th, 2022, I don't think that we have a lot of ground to stand on anymore. I, I, I think these should be lifted. But again, I will say this once, I'll say this a hundred times. If uh, Once all these mandates are lifted, if you want to wear a mask for whatever reason, indoors, you want your kid to wear a mask, that's completely fine with me. And I, I will not judge anybody because we're all going to have a different process as we move into the post-pandemic period. Beautiful, beautiful. And maybe this is, we can end off a bit because um, I think we hit up most of these questions. Um, actually, yeah, we did cover transmission. Uh, we did it well, actually. Um, I'm going to give you both the floor. I'll start with Zane. What, like, people of influence will listen to this. I promise you. And I, I feel like my 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 vibe is that they want some people want permission to be more to to remove restrictions comfortably, you know. And so, if you were king for the day, what would be the process like? Would you want? Do we need to do a gradual process? Do we need to keep some mandates uh, for a specific period of time? How would you like to see us exit as we're, in my opinion, going to be approaching the endemic phase? Zane Chagla. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think one, the one piece that has always been missing in this, always, is risk assessment, right? Telling people, honestly, what is their risk? And again, you know, there's lots of great data out there. And BC has put out a really, you know, beautiful algorithm, logistic regression model based on what they saw in the month of Omicron uh, in terms of to see age, risk factors. I can flip it up. I have yeah, it right yeah. here. It's yeah, beautiful. I'm gonna, oh, wait, the disabled screen sharing. Um, uh, but, but um, you know, it's, it's beautiful. And it really says, what is a person's risk at any given comorbidity age? And so I'll go, you know, I can tell you an 18-year-old with two doses of vaccine has a 0.1% risk of hospitalization. And I, yeah, there you go. Uh, and it's, it's a beautiful algorithm. 
it's one that you can you could give to the public. You could put in an app. You could tell people what their risks are, right? And it really helps guide people's decision making in terms of how they engage with society. Uh, again, you know, do you want to go to a packed Leafs or Raptors game? Well, you know, again, if you're an 80 year old with three doses of vaccine, maybe you have to make that decision and and say, you know, either I'm going to wear the best mask I can to go to that, or you know, I might have to put that one down, but take my grandkids somewhere else, like a small restaurant or something along those lines. Right. Um, but if you're an 18 year old with two doses, look, you know, the world is yours. You can do whatever you want in that sense. Right. And I think that part has been lost. And, you know, as we ever get to, you know, a reopening where people can judge their own risk, you know, this is going to be a part of this. There was an incredible, I think, survey done in the United States that talked to people about, um, the, uh, that survey people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated and what they thought their risk of getting hospitalized with COVID-19 was. Do you remember this? The vaccinated people thought the risk of hospitalization was like 20 to 50%. The unvaccinated people thought it was like less than 10%. Right. And so that, that really shows how much people's risk assessments are so screwed up these days, especially knowing that, age is a gradient in hospitalization. Vaccines do chop the risk significantly of a serious outcome. Uh, and, you know, Omicron has really taught us that, you know, vaccines alone are probably not going to prevent you from getting Omicron in your lifetime. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're going to prevent you from getting seriously ill. And two versus three doses is really based on that risk algorithm. Number two, you know, I think we can cut, you know, does a restaurant at 50% or 100% really make a difference these days, right? It is a high-risk environment. You know, we, we can treat it as a high-risk environment. And again, two versus three doses of vaccines are what are going to protect people in that environment from getting sick uh, or having prior infection. It's not going to be 50 or 100% capacity. Let's, you know, let industries survive uh, and uh, give them the ability to try to survive under regular uh, means, recognizing that, yeah, unfortunately, everyone is going to experience this virus over the foreseeable future, and their vaccines are going to be what are protecting them or their, their natural immunity, plus obviously their, their health status more than anything else. Um, and I think we, we, we do have to talk about, you know, how do we proactively get vaccines into the communities, especially in those over 50? You know, the booster shots are there. That's going to help healthcare more than anything else. And a mandate's not going to do that. Uh, we need proactive people out there. You know, unfortunately, with the Omicron wave, a lot of healthcare practitioners were pulled into projects, pulled into hospitals, pulled into, you know, sickness on their own and getting Omicron. And so, you know, that really does need to be pulled back. And then those community efforts to educate people about risk and about uh, vaccinations, particularly for highest risk populations, is going to be a huge part of moving forward. There are definitely people that need their third doses. And the fact that we haven't even got 70-year-olds up to like 75%, I think that's, that was the last, uh, and they're, they're at 93% for two doses, means that even in that group where there is a mortality benefit, we haven't done enough of a job to get people who have accepted two doses of vaccine to come back for a third dose, Right. So, you know, I think there's, there's lots of that. And, and really, I, you know, I, I could not care less if we have, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 people at Scotiabank next week. I care about us focusing on, you know, getting third doses into the right people, you know, making sure we have access to therapeutics and testing appropriately for people who are high risk, who can access them, who will change their hospitalization status. 
those are going to be the steps that we need investment into to keep this as a sustainable future. It's not going to be 10 or 10,000 people. It's not going to be 50 or hundred percent capacity. It's not going to be half gyms or full gyms. It's going to be vaccines and it's going to be treatments and it's going to be appropriate testing. That's going to lead us forward. Suman, I'm going to push a little bit. What about, what about, you know, do we still have a place for passports? Do we still have a place for, uh, you know, testing uh, for, with travel. Do we have a still have a place for you know? Uh, you're a 13 year old that wants to play basketball. That have mandates for for you to be able to to play sports. Do we is it in in the future or now? You, I'll let you dance. Do we have a role for this? I think the answer is no. I think that at this point in time, like I, I you know, the um, 1982 School Immunization Act, notwithstanding, that I think that at this point in time, mandating um, things where you have a vaccine that, like Zane mentioned, there is some small um, reduction in transmission, at least up front. You don't know what that's going to do in, in a couple of months. And in my my estimation, it's, it's probably not much, to be honest with you. I think it's going to wane pretty significantly. The point is there's not a big enough difference to um, justify using a vaccine passport in a restaurant or any public place. Um, I, I want to take one quick turn here. Um, I've been very critical about the idea of moralization of this virus. Um, and this is something that Zane, you and me have talked about a lot, is that when Omicron came around, I saw something very interesting. And we, we, were, we were highlighting this. There's a lot of people who had been careful and they were writing these long threads on Twitter, almost like they were in purgatory that, you know, they had gotten COVID and they had to tell everybody they, they had done everything right. And I think this kind of illustrates what was wrong with our pandemic um, communication is that we convinced people, number one, we inflated the risk to um, get them to do things. I think it's called nudge psychology. Um, to, we inflated the risk of COVID. We inflated, and we we kind of um, inflated the risk of what would happen even if you're vaccinated. And then number two is that you know you, you look at what happened uh, uh, after we got vaccinated, and people were still thinking to themselves that oh man, I got I got to wear, wear a mask. I can't go into a, a public setting. I think the big thing for us is regardless of the numbers, we just need to take individuals and get them back into a 2018 mindset. I say 18 just to kind of give enough space away from 2019. I think that, um, Zane, I think that um, risk calculation thing, that uh, uh, BC thing is awesome. But most people don't look at that kind of stuff. They don't think about that. They don't think, like, I'm a seven-year-old guy. I want to go to a wedding indoors in, in November. They're not thinking about that kind I of stuff. I think you need to I, compare it to something. I was thinking about this as we were speaking. Like, I, I, like what I, do you guys see the Peter Tia like, your risk of, dying from COVID compared to, to driving compared to homicide. Yeah. Like, I think that is where you, people really can grasp it. Like I always say with kids and, and like driving your kids to hockey or soccer poses a higher risk than COVID, right? you know, statistically speaking. So like, I think people can, when you have something relatable, then, then it, it could be digested. Sorry. Yeah. Interrupt. No, no, no. That's good. But I mean, the thing is that what we're seeing right now, which is the challenge that we're having to get out of this pandemic is two years worth of fear-based messaging and moralization. Uh, people think that, that if you got the virus, you did something wrong. All of this is to say, I had a conversation this week with, with a colleague of mine. Um, and, you know, we were talking about the, the vaccine passport and, you know, why I think that it shouldn't be there. 
in the end, the comment was, you know what? I just want to be comfortable being in a bar or a restaurant, knowing that the people around me are vaccinated. And I thought to myself, wait, wait a minute. Why do you think that? The thing is, if you're vaccinated, your risk of, of severe disease is now, um, you know, significantly reduced. If anything, it's the unvaccinated person being in that place. Although now it's different because they've been exposed to virus. But before it was that person is at a higher risk being there. You're more at risk to them than they are to you. And then I realized what it actually was is lots of people have this, this very same uh, feeling in their mind that, you know what, the last two years, I have done all the right things. I, I stayed home. I didn't uh, see my, my, my folks. I wore a mask. I got vaccinated. And despite all that, I'm going to go to a restaurant and an unvaccinated person is going to come now. It's like they're freeloading. And the thing is, I understand where that sentiment comes from, but that sentiment is so strong because of the moralization that we've done. So, you can't keep somebody out of a public place because you don't like their choice of, you know, like people will smoke outside for sure. But the thing is, if, if you don't like someone, you can't keep them out of a restaurant. If you don't like that fact that somebody is, um, you know, eats, uh, I don't know, uh, meat, you, you can't have them from not sitting next to you. The point that I'm trying to make is that we have to kind of get back to the point where we're all living back in society. We're not constantly thinking about COVID numbers, vaccination statuses. We just kind of do what we did before. And, um, you know, it sounds like the vaccine passport is going to be dropped here in Ontario pretty soon. Uh, and I'm, I'm all for it. And I don't think that we should be mandating vaccines for school. I don't think we should be mandating um, vaccine, by the way, is COVID vaccine for extracurricular activities. I think we really all need to take a step back and think, Let's look at what we have on the ground right now and go with that data. And right now, as of February 11th, 2022, I think that um, a vaccine mandate doesn't make a lot of sense given what's happened in the last month. Especially with the, you know, the widespread uh, ness of Omicron, up to 4 million people, I remember Zane saying, potentially infected, that hybrid immunity that's going to be throughout the community. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Listen, folks, this was, as usual, legend, legendary. And I, I just want to really give some love to Dr. Zane Chagla, Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, Dr. Steph Burrell, birthday boy, birthday, birthday number 32. Really want to uh, um, uh, give some props. Last thing I want to say, you know, if there, if there happens to be some leaders right now listening to this, we... we I've said it before, I'll say it again. We need hope. We need our leaders to give a direction. We need our leaders to show us that the end is possible, the end is near, and what's going to determine us being near the end? Because people have stepped up throughout the nation. People have stepped up. They've got vaccinated, as Suma said. They stayed home when they were supposed to. They kept away from their loved ones. And now they were two years deep, and approaching this problem the same way isn't enough. We need to hear from our, our leaders why we're going to exit this pandemic, how we're going to exit this pandemic. You heard some great minds today talk about how we can achieve that. Knock and on not, our door, man. And, and, and like, What's that? Go, go into the post-pandemic period without the fear of lockdown over our heads again. Yeah, I, without I, that, like, yeah, make, don't think we should ever lock down again. Yes, like what we have, the tools we have at, the, at our, our disposal now the vaccines, the monoclonal antibodies, 
Paxlovid. We got fluvoxamine. We didn't mention that. You know what I mean? Like there's several treatments now that we have available to really reduce our risk of, of landing in hospital. We could be creative. We could be innovative. Let's do it. Come with energy, come with focus, and just not come up with that Band-Aid solution, that, that rebound solution of, of, of restrictions. We're beyond that now. People need hope. Give them a vision and sell it. It's, it's, it's that time. All right, people. Press it. Go NL if you want a copy of the, the podcast and the or the, the video. We love you. Thanks so much for listening. This was a lot of fun, gents. We'll talk soon. As always.